Uh, welcome. We really are truly grateful that you're here with us, and um, I'm extremely grateful that we're uh, able to worship together. Um, uh, by way of quick reminder before we jump into our text, directly after chapel this morning, uh, there will be a Q&A here in the chapel with President Halverson, uh, and most of the cabinet will be here as well if you have any questions, so I would encourage you to stay. So this morning, uh, as we continue to celebrate Easter week, uh, we're going to look at a um, couple of different uh, texts, but we're going we're gonna to sit within the, the crucifixion and the, the week of the resurrection and sometime after, but we're going to look at it with somewhat different eyes, with a, a somewhat different perspective, and we're going to focus in really on two separate relationships that we see unfolding uh, during this time. So uh, we're going to start in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, where Jesus has uh, been arrested. Um, he has uh, walked willingly to his accusers, and they have come, and they have arrested him. And they have taken him first uh, to the house of Caiaphas, the high priest, uh, where he would stand trial before the Sanhedrin. They accused him of blasphemy, they spit on him, they beat him, and they took him then to Pilate. They took him to uh, the, Roman tetra the Roman leader because he was the one who could put Jesus to death. Well, before Pilate, uh, Pilate finds no basis for a charge against Jesus. And learning that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sends him to Herod. So he comes now before Herod, the Tetrarch, the same who had cowardly murdered John the Baptist not too long ago. And Herod plies Jesus with questions. He thinks it's great that Jesus has shown up because he's wanted to ask him these questions. He wants to see him do some kind of great sign. Uh, but Jesus meets him with silence. So we're told that the chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there vehemently accusing Jesus, and Herod and the soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. And then dressing him in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. And then we have this often overlooked verse, that day Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they had been enemies. Jesus is sent back to Pilate, wearing these elegant, kingly robes, his face beaten, he's been spat upon. And this is what happens. Pilate goes back inside the palace and summons Jesus and asks him, are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied? Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders, but now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth, retorted Pilate. And truth stood before him. But despite Pilate's fear at the suggestion of some that Jesus claimed to be the Son of God, he has him flogged and crucified. So we go back to that one sort of innocuous verse that that day Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this day, they had been enemies. These two men who encountered the Son of God in flesh before them became friends. And I think it's also one of the most penetrating verses in this story. The Son of God Jesus Christ, fully man and fully God, is there before them. They look into his eyes. They hold his life in their hands. And Herod, 
Herod responds with bravado, with condescension, with bewildering pride, which culminates in him placing these elegant robes on Jesus, mocking him after having beaten him and sends him back to Pilate. And Pilate, who had previously felt disdain for Herod, who had previously disliked him and even seen him almost, uh, if not just a thorn in his side, but almost as an enemy, Pilate now has a change of heart. He sees in Herod's actions, in his mockery, in his wielding of power, in his astonishing sense of condescension, someone that he wants to call friend. And we should feel the full weight of that irony. Before him was truth. Before him was the one who is the way, the truth, the very life. The one who would call him friend with a meaning that Pilate had no idea how deeply it ran. Pilate asked, what is truth? And truth stood before him. But he saw in Herod the man that he wanted to be friends with. So while this new friendship between Pilate and Herod is forged over power and condescension and mockery, the relationship between Jesus and Peter, while unfolding through this same time frame, the same events, couldn't have been more different. Peter and Jesus had a special relationship. Uh, Peter and Jesus had a special relationship. I'm so sorry. I lost a page of notes. Give me one sec. Good heavens, I really did. (laughs) Okay, I know you're feeling worse for me than I'm actually feeling right now. (laughs) Hold on a sec. Okay, see, this is why it's important to know what you're talking about. Uh, So Jesus and Pilate did indeed have a special relationship. Jesus had healed his mother-in-law. Uh, Jesus had called him to walk on the water with him. And he actually literally walked on the water with Jesus. He had called him Cephas. You will be called, Peter, you, you will be called the rock. You will be the one that I will build the church upon. But Peter's relationship with Jesus um, takes a harsh turn. Because after the Last Supper, after the last meal that they ate together, Jesus and Peter had an interesting and very poignant conversation. They talked about what was going to happen. And Jesus said, you will all fall away on account of me. And Peter said, oh Lord, even if everyone else falls away on account of you, I never will. Jesus tells Peter, Peter, before the rooster crows three times, you will deny me. That same night, they head to the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is arrested, and they're taken, he's taken to the home of Caiaphas, the high priest. And there, Jesus is questioned by the Sanhedrin. And Peter and John, while all the rest of the disciples have scattered, Peter and John follow along. And John somehow gets the two of them into the garden area. And while Jesus is being questioned in the praetorium, they're out in the middle. Imagine a house with like a large open section in the middle. And the guards are there warming their hands at the fire, and Peter and John are inside. And it's there 
that Jesus denies, that Peter denies Jesus three times. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, this man was with him, but he denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, you also are one of them. Man, I am not, Peter replied. About an hour later, another asserted, certainly this fellow was with him, for he is a Galilean. Peter replied, man, I don't know what you're talking about. Just as he was speaking, the rooster crowed, and what follows is one of the most heartbreaking moments in all of Scripture. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word the Lord had spoken to him. Before the rooster crows today, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. As Peter goes out and weeps bitterly, what would happen next is the most unjust, the most grievous, the greatest evil ever perpetrated by humankind. Jesus is put to death on a cross. And the crucifixion was in every way devastating. Rocks split and the sun literally darkened. Jesus' family, his friends, his followers, his disciples, even the soldiers who were there were jolted to the very core of their being. But without exaggeration, none was more destroyed than Peter. His actions had betrayed the last words that he spoke to his friend and to his master. His actions even betrayed his own heart. Jesus was dead. There was no explaining, no redemption. There would be no restoration. And as the cross was a sign of cruelty, before it became a sign of victory, Peter would know despair before he would know joy. He would know grieving before rejoicing. He would know aloneness before he would know restoration. It's the way of this world. But in his grief, the unexpected happened. Mary comes with either the sweetest words ever spoken or the cruelest joke ever played. The Lord had, go, had told her, go, tell the disciples and Peter, find him, find the alone one, the one who has separated himself out. Find him, and she brings Peter the words, the Lord is alive, he is risen. So we pick up in an interesting place. Jesus is alive, he's appeared to the disciples as a group twice, hope has been rekindled, but there's still confusion. He hasn't given them any clear directions. He's no longer staying with them. It appears they have no, no idea when or where Jesus is going to show up. What exactly do we do? And Peter, Peter is still living with the reality that he denied the master that he loves. So we find ourselves at the Sea of Tiberias. And at the Sea of Tiberias, Peter goes back to what he knows. Good heavens, really? <laughs> We're doing this the old-fashioned way. I'm so sorry. Really, I don't know where my text is. We're going to be in John 21. So we're at the Sea of Tiberias. 
uh, and Peter has gone back to what he knows best. He's a fisherman. So he goes out onto the water, and he goes to fish. And while he fishes, they go at night. He's there with seven of the other, six of the other disciples. And they say, we will go out with you. And they have a night of fishing. And here's what happens. After Jesus appeared again to his disciples, this time by the Sea of Tiberias, it happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel from Canaan and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and the two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them. And they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat. But that night, they caught nothing. And it starts off somewhat innocuous enough, right? Peter's a fisherman. He's going out to fish. That's what they do. They have a night of fruitless fishing. But this night of fruitless fishing will change very quickly and very soon. Because we're told in the next verse that early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not recognize that it was Jesus. So as the darkness gives way to the sunshine, Jesus stands on the shore. And when Jesus shows up on the shore, if we pull back a little bit and we see the scene that is unfolding, it should hit us like a ton of bricks. Because Jesus is there, the risen Christ, the Lord on the shore. And Peter is out in the boat. And if we look back about three years, we remember that it was a really similar instance when, Peter call, when Jesus called Peter to follow him. Jesus had been teaching at Lake Gennesaret. They're there on the shore. Jesus gets into a boat that belongs to Peter, and he's teaching. But when he's done teaching, he says to Peter, put out into the deep water and drop your nets down. And Peter says, Lord, we've, we've been fishing all night, and we've caught nothing. But because the Lord had told him to do so, they drop down the nets, and they catch this massive catch of fish. And Peter says, oh, Lord, go away from me because I'm a sinful man. And Jesus tells him, you're going to become a fisher of men, not of fish. Upon you, I'm going to build my church. Now, again, a night of fishing with no fish. And Jesus is standing on the shore. They're also at a lake, not unlike the one where Jesus had called to Peter, come, Peter, walk on the water, come to me. And even for just a moment, Peter walks on the water with Jesus. And in just a moment, we're going to see a meal take place. We're going to see a meal not unlike the one that they had just a short time ago where Peter said, Lord, I will never, ever leave you. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. And I have to figure that at exactly that moment, Peter knew who was standing on the shore. He remembered too acutely what, it was, what happened exactly three years ago. The nets go down and now as they pull them up, it's full of fish. But apparently, John also recognized exactly who was on the shore. The disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. And as soon as Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. And what a beautiful picture we have. Jesus, the risen Lord, is standing on the shore. And there is Peter in the boat. And there is every reason in the world 
for his shame to rule his actions. There's every reason for Peter to stop, to pull the nets in, to row the boat to shore, to to hope, to pray that Jesus would have a kind word for him. But no, that's not what he does. He jumps into the water. He wraps his clothes around him, and he jumps in. And I literally picture Peter doggy paddling for 100 yards, because I think that is how Peter rolls. He jumps in, and he starts taking off. 100 yards to shore. That's nice, guys. (laughs) They were doggy paddling. Um, 100 yards to shore. He jumps in. We don't know what they said, but it appears that they made breakfast. And the thought of the risen Christ cleaning fish and making bread with Peter makes me love my Lord even more. But I love what Peter did. A reminder that anytime we're tempted in the face of shame to pull into self, to retreat, to wait, to hope that maybe Jesus will have a kind word for us, instead to jump, to doggy paddle, to run with the passion and the love and the expectation that Peter showed. Well, Jesus, or Peter appears to get there before uh, the boat. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish you've caught. So Simon Peter climbs aboard and drags the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them, did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. They knew it was Jesus. Jesus in his glorified body, different. They didn't know by sight alone, but they knew that it was him. And then after they had this meal, Peter and Jesus take a little walk. This doesn't normally happen. Is there? On the back of this one. Hey, guess what? So apparently I have my entire sermon here. Yeah. The marvels of modern photocopying. I didn't know you could put it on both sides. How about that? Wow, here's everything. How about this? Huh. We'll trust the Lord's been in this whole thing, right? (laughs) So Jesus and Peter go for a walk. And here's what my notes say. (laughs) When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? So picture this. They're sitting and they're having their meal, and then Jesus calls Peter, and they get up to go for a walk. And as they walk, the risen Christ, the victorious Savior, begins to question Peter. And this, in, in all reality, is the greatest DTR that has happened in all of history. Simon, son of John. Peter, Jesus uses the same exact name 
that he used when he called him on the lake three years earlier. He says, do you truly love me more than these? And the question would have hit home for Peter because Peter knows that he was wrong that before he compared his devotion to the others. Lord, even if everyone else falls away, I never will. And now Jesus asks him, is it true that you really love me more than these? It hits home. But he says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He answers, and Jesus' knowledge of his love is the only thing on which he can base his appeal. His actions have betrayed him. So he says, Lord, you know that I love you. And then Jesus gives him this odd command. He says, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. With the first question asked, the comparing of himself to others over, Jesus asked him, do you truly love me? It may seem an odd repetition, but we'll see why he does it in a moment. And Peter says, oh, Lord, you know. You know that I love you. And he says, take care of my sheep. And then the third time, Jesus says to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was hurt because Jesus had asked him a third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. And with the third question, the third time, Peter is hurt. He's not indignant. He's not angry at Jesus. He's just hurt. And we wonder, is he hurt because he asked three times? Or is he hurt because he knows why he's being asked three times? He denied him three times, and Jesus asks for affirmation of his love three times, and that is exactly the point. Jesus is not trying to make him feel bad. Instead, he's giving him a chance to affirm his love three times like he denied him three times. Painful, but restoring. And Peter will know that Jesus is forgiving him for the full measure of his denial, every word of it. And it also allows Jesus to give him a new commission. He says, Peter, your love for me must be manifested in taking care of my sheep. The great shepherd is calling Peter to love and care for his church. The fisher of men is to become a shepherd of God's people. His restoration also prepares Peter to hear what follows. He says, Peter, when you said that you would never disown me, you said that you would follow me to death. You couldn't have done it then, but now, hear this. I tell you the truth. When you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. You are right, Peter. Your love for me will cost you your life. And Peter's not unaware of what Jesus is saying. But the despair, the despair is gone. He's forgiven. He's restored to his Lord. He's told his job, and he's told the cost. And Jesus then utters the most important words that Peter could have desired to hear. And when I say that to you, the most important words that, that Peter could have hoped to hear, what, what do you expect those words to be? I love you, Peter. You're forgiven, Peter. But that's not what he says. He doesn't say, I understand, Peter. He says, follow me. The same words he uttered to him three years before, but this time, Peter knows whom he is following. He knows what it will cost him. 
And all of those other words are implied in follow me. Peter, follow me. I love you. Follow me. You are forgiven. Follow me. And with that, with those words, Peter is restored. The tragedy is replaced by joy, and despair is replaced by love. So now we come back to Herod and to Pilate. Jesus Christ stood before Pontius Pilate, the Son of God before the Roman prefect, the image of the invisible God in whom the fullness of God dwelt, beaten and mocked and arrayed in kingly robes, the one who could give Pilate life stood right before him. But Pilate chose to, def- to befriend Herod on that day, despite the fact that the light of the world was before him. Pilate chose Herod. And we may think, what a fool. We would never, ever do that. But Pilate chose to be friends with Herod, not because of who Herod was. Pilate chose to befriend Herod because of the idea of Herod, because of the idea of power, the idea of being kingly, the idea of cleverness. Herod was a horrible, evil human being. Not only had he murdered John the Baptist, he was so paranoid that he had put several of his own children to death. He had married his brother's wife. But Pilate loved the idea of a man who so cleverly mocked Jesus, the idea of his power and his cleverness. And the reality is that the risen Christ is before us now. He's no longer beaten and bloody, but glorified. And how we, how you, how I respond to him is the most important thing in this world. And we may think that we would never be like Pilate, but our hearts are deceitful creatures. While Jesus stands before us like Pilate, we may be satisfied by the idea of Jesus, the idea of believing the right things, the idea of him as Savior and Lord, the idea of being saved from sin and death, the idea, but not the person, the idea, but not the risen Lord. But with Peter, he calls us and says, follow me. And with those two words, Jesus strips away every ounce of Christian lingo, every ounce of cultural Christianity, every platitude you've ever heard, every Christian t-shirt that's ever existed, and it takes us to the foot of Jesus himself who said, I am the way and the truth and the life. Follow me. He who came to forgive sinners of whom I am the worst, follow me. He who had authority over sickness, disease, and the forces of nature, follow me. Who experienced every temptation that you and I know, but remained faithful and obedient and sinless before his Father, follow me. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, even though he dies, will still live, and whoever lives and believes in me shall never die, follow me. Who died on a cross in our place, that when the Father looks at us, He sees his son's righteousness. Follow me. Who rose victorious over sin and death that we might live now and that we might rise at the last day. Follow me. But when he says follow me, 
He says, follow me knowing that it will cost you everything, that you will die to yourself, that you will be conformed to my likeness, and that I was the despised one. But follow me, and you will live. We don't pretend that life is easy. We don't pretend that the path we walk is not without tragedy and sadness and sickness and things that are too great for us to bear. But Jesus says, follow me. Follow me and take up your cross and follow me. You will die. You will die to self. But when you die to self and follow me is when you will truly live. For in him is life. There is none apart from him. That's why how we respond to the risen Christ is the most important thing in the world. It's not a question of degree. It's a question of life or death. It's a question, are we willing to follow, to take up our cross and die to self and live for Jesus that we might live? Because there's no other choice. Pilate, Look Jesus Christ in the eyes. Herod, look Jesus Christ in the eyes. And they cast him aside and chose to be friends with one another. Oh, doesn't that break your heart? Let us look into the eyes of Jesus who calls us and says, follow me. And we say, Lord, I'll die for you. Mortifying my flesh that I might live. That is abundant life. That's the gospel. That's the good news that Jesus offers us. Let's pray. Father, I am so grateful that you use us in our brokenness. Father, I'm so grateful that you call us to follow you as friend, as Lord, as master, as savior, as father. Help us, Lord, to not be deceived by the deceitfulness of our own hearts to not fall in love with an idea of you, but to love you as risen Lord of our lives. Father, I pray that by your spirit, you will make us able to follow you, that we might be willing to die for you, and that in doing so, we might truly live. Father, we give you all praise and thanks and honor in the name of your Son, our Savior, Jesus. Amen. Friends, go in the peace and the love of Jesus.